1: It's my foundation, I will trust in Him, I will trust in Him.
0: Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua, and welcome to the final
2: concluding episode of God's Appointed Times. Now, in our previous episode, we just finished the various passages of the Bible and other logical arguments which support a pre-tribulational rapture. In this final episode, what we are going to do is look at the various arguments and counter-arguments which are lodged by various scholars who disagree with the uh, argument for the pre-tribulational rapture. So, what are these complaints, concerns, or arguments that those that are against the pre-tribulational rapture have? Well, number one, firstly, opponents of the pre-tribulational rapture frequently make dogmatic assertions that a pre- tribulational rapture was never taught before 1820 AD. Further, The various books, online resources and sermons and so forth attribute the origin of the pre-tribulational rapture theory to one John N. Darby. To go even further, some ascribe his teaching to what he learned from either cultic or occultic origins as a way to smear the pre-tribulational rapture and to have as many as possible abandon the uh, pre-tribulational view as something which is heretical. And ultimately, these sources claim that the early church, that would be the first and perhaps second century church, never taught a pre-tribulational rapture. And since it wasn't theorized until 1820 AD, that this proves that the pre-tribulational rapture view is unbiblical. Now, in order to disabuse some of this uh, notions, it's helpful to remember that, like with the theory of the Trinity, simply because the word Trinity does not appear in the Old or New Testament, does not mean that the concept of God in three Persons is not clearly taught in numerous areas throughout both the Old and New Testament. Likewise, simply because the phrase pre-tribulational rapture or something along those lines is not explicitly found in either the Old or New Testament does not mean that the idea, the concept of a pre-tribulational rapture is not biblical. Now, in order to further disabuse this idea, what we do find is an ancient citation from a sermon ascribed to one Ephraim of Nisibus, who was a Syrian church father who lived from 306 to 373 AD. In this sermon, Nisibus clearly teaches that believers will be raptured and will be taken to heaven before the tribulation. The translation of his sermon includes the following segment quote, For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. Unquote. So, Clearly, from a simple mathematical standpoint, we see that 306 to 373 AD is clearly far before 1820, which is allegedly the first mention of the pre-tribulational rapture. Secondly, if Ephraim of Nisibus was teaching believers about a pre-tribulational rapture, then it would stand to reason that that theory and that that belief was already present in the early Christian church perhaps as early as mid to late second century. In other words, he didn't make it out of whole cloth. He was simply repeating something that he understood from someone else. So, as a result, what we can conclude from this as that the argument that the age of the theory, being 1820 AD, is something which is spurious. It is not true. It is simply uh, something that is thrown out there by those who have not done their due diligence homework, and in fact we can see that when we see this citation in particular, it was doubtless one of many which would support the idea that the 1st and at worst the 2nd uh, century church was already under the belief that they would be raptured prior to the tribulation, which is in a set, essence the same as believing in a pre-tribulational rapture. Next, we have the argument from the same scholars who bring up an issue called eminence. Now the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition of eminence says that eminence is the quality or the condition of something which is about to occur, the state of something which is likely to happen very soon or something which is coming very soon. However, when we actually look at the arguments from those who espouse this complaint, if you will, or this argument of eminence, what they define eminence as is something very different. It is a doctrinal or a theological definition of eminence, which holds two things which are both predicated on one another. The first thing that eminence says is that Jesus can return on any day at any time. And in connection with that, the second thing that eminence says is that there is nothing which we are waiting for which will preclude his return. So, those two things both have to be true in the doctrine or theology, uh, the, the doctrine of eminence. However, the question is where in the Bible? do we actually get this idea of eminency? Is it a biblical idea, or is it simply something that uh, comes after the fact that we're reading into scripture? Well, as we survey the Bible, and in particular the New Testament, we come across terms like soon, quickly, eagerly, and without warning. As for example, we have Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 where it says, quote, "Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." unquote. Near being a relative term. We also have Revelation chapter 22 verse 7 where it says, and, quote, "and behold, I am coming" soon, unquote. Again, the word soon being relative. We also have Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, where again it says, quote, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, unquote. Again, the coming soon or soon, a relative term. However, what we have to come to terms with is the fact that these relative terms, like soon and quickly, are not the same as any day or any time. We also have to ask, at the end of the day, whether there have been any events in history which God needed to accomplish before Christ could return. Because remember, the second point in this argument of eminency is that there is nothing which we are now waiting for which precludes his return. So if we look at uh, history and we look at the Bible, do we find anything there which was predicted which needed to precede Jesus's return? Well, the answer is yes we find that Jesus predicted that the disciples would be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the farthest part of the earth as is seen in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And again we find a prophecy by Jesus saying that there would be the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost which occurs in Acts chapter 2. We see that there is ultimately the conversion and ministry of Saul to the Apostle Paul found in Acts chapter 9. We see that the salvation of God is brought to the Gentiles beginning with Cornelius in Acts chapter 28 verse 8. We also see that Jesus predicts in the Synoptic Gospels that Peter would be martyred in John chapter 21, verse 38. We also see on several occasions in the Synoptic Gospels that Jesus predicts that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed and that not one stone would be left upon another, which occurred and was fulfilled in 70 A.D., we see that the completion and the close of the New Testament with the book of Revelation occurred approximately in A.D. 90. And then finally, at long last, we see that the restoration of Israel occurred in 1948. And these are just a few that we might list. Now, looking at all these things, we have to ask, could Jesus have returned prior to any of these things happening? The answer is no. From the time that he ascended to the Father until the time when these things were accomplished, including the restoration of Israel in 1948, it would have been theologically and doctrinally impossible for Jesus to return without these things being accomplished, because had he done so, then his prophecies would have been null and void, and God would have been found to be a liar. Therefore, the doctrine of eminence, as is defined by these proponents who launched the theory of eminence, was illegitimate and unfounded up until and including 1948. And we could go further beyond that to add other things which might be accomplished by God in his timing. So, in conclusion, what we do find is that Scripture teaches that Christians, believers in Christ, should live with a sense of urgency, a sense of redeeming the time, and defining Christ's coming and happening as coming soon, quickly, quickly and hoping for his eminent return. But all these terms are relative and are there so as to provide expectancy, so as to cause personal sanctification on the part of believers, and also a sense of urgency for being on a fence for the gospel and being salt and light for a darkened world. But ultimately, as stated before, if God fails to fulfill these prophecies listed above, and if in fact these fall-winter feasts are legitimately forecasting God's calendar of up-and-coming eschatological events, then any return of Christ prior to these fall-winter feasts being fulfilled would then signal God's abandoning of his faithfulness to prophecy and eschatology, just merely for the sake of maintaining this supposed concocted idea of eminency. The next issue we have is that of secrecy. Now, the issue of secrecy is actually twofold. The doctrine of secrecy holds that the rapture is an event which is secret, meaning that nobody knows when it is happening. It is an event which God is the only one who knows beforehand when it is happening. Others take the opposite side of the coin and say that any theology or eschatology which tries to portray Christ coming as a secret event is heretical because clearly uh, there are passages which say that Christ will come and that every eye will see him. So this argument is very much akin to the argument which took place in the Old Testament between the various scribes and Pharisees who looked at various passages within the Old Testament and saw some passages which talked about a suffering Messiah and other passages which talked about a conquering Messiah, and still other passages which somewhat mixed the two ideas. And therein there started a debate between the scribes and Pharisees as to was it one coming of Christ? Was it two comings of Christ? Was it two different Christs? How do you reconcile a suffering and conquering Messiah? So the same holds true for this idea of secrecy. Some look at passages which say that every eye will see him, as for an example. And others look at passages which say that, for example, no man knows the day or the hour, and say that it must be secret as a result. But the fact of the matter is that it could be two different comings of Christ to explain it in the same way as there were two first comings. Now, as to the various passages of Scripture which are used classically to support this idea, we have Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, and Mark chapter 13, verse 32. Both are very similar and essentially say, quote, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So these two verses are classic examples of verses which are used to say that the rapture is a quote-unquote secret event. However, the reality is that as we uh, look into and attempt to understand Jewish Hebraic culture, we see that this statement is an example of a Hebraic idiom which is well known to Jewish culture and it owes its explanation and its example to two things. Number one, we have the example of the ancient Jewish wedding, which we have mentioned numerous times. And again, to summarize, we have the groom, who by tradition would leave his bride for about a minimum of a year, during which time of his absence he would prepare a separate living house in or next to where his father lived, the father would supervise the construction and preparation of the house where the uh, bride and groom would live, and the father would ultimately be solely responsible to tell his son when the father believed that the living accommodations were ready and he was to return to claim his bride. Thus, in that culture, and even today in many circles, whenever Someone would ask, the bride, the groom, or someone in the bride and groom's circle, uh, they would ask when the actual wedding celebration was to take place. The one being asked would, by tradition, answer the question by saying, No man knoweth the day or the hour but the Father. Why? because that's the culture and history of how the ancient Jewish wedding custom proceeds is because it is an issue governed by the father's timing and his will if you will as to the everything that takes place and so Jesus the disciples the writers of the New Testament were all familiar with this culture and tradition And therefore, that's why Jesus uses the reference, and that's why others used the reference, was to point out, uh, by analogy, say, hey, it's the same thing. The second example we find is in the festival of Yom Torura and the month of Tishri, which we've previously discussed. And again, by summary, Yom Torura is the only one of seven feasts and festivals of the Jewish year which falls on the first of the month of Tishri. And as stated, this is problematic because the first of every month is dictated by the appearance of the phase of the new moon in the sky which is to signal the beginning of the Jewish month. as stated, The sighting of the new moon in the first century would be difficult since observation by the naked eye would require seeing the new moon in spite of any atmospheric and or weather conditions which might be present. Second, sighting the new moon required by culture two independent witnesses who were delegated by the high priest to look for the new moon. Thirdly, once the two independent witnesses respectively saw the new moon, they were to inform the high priest, whose job it was to then independently look up and to verify that the, he himself could see the new moon. At which point, when all three were in agreement, the high priest could then officially declare that the new moon had been sighted, that the first of the month had begun and that any subsequent feasts and festivals of that month could then be engaged in. Fourthly, once the new moon was in fact ratified by all these three people, they would then light signal fires in Jerusalem, to be lit on high hills so as to relay the information through the lighting of the fires to all Israel and the Holy Land so that all Jews anywhere and everywhere would then know that in fact that the new moon had been sighted, that the first of the month was there, and then they could proceed with whatever feast and festival which was to take place. So, because of all of this, Yom Torura is the only festival where two literal days are recognized as one day in order to provide enough time to see the new moon, recognize the new moon, light the signal fires, and communicate that the first of the month and any festival was now underway. So, if we were in the first century or even the second century whenever uh, these feasts and festivals were taking place if we were to talk to the man in the street any orthodox jew and we were to ask hey when is yom toro starting or when is the feast of trumpets beginning any orthodox jew who understood all the above that Jew would respond, likely, as is the custom even today, quote, no man knoweth the day or the hour, unquote. Well, why? Because it wasn't something you could just look at a calendar. It wasn't something that came on your iPhone. Uh, It took a series of various things to take place where it had to be verified, and then, and only then, would it be man- manifest to everyone that, in fact, Yom Terurah and the uh, Feast of Trumpets was underway. In addition, this is also why Yom Turura or the Feast of Trumpets, is alternately referred to as, quote-unquote, the hidden day it's not that no one has any clue in the literal sense of when it is to occur. They have a fairly good idea of when it will occur in the general sense. It's just simply that they have to wait for the new moon to be sighted. And it's, as stated, it's contingent on a a number of variables which have to be legally and officially declared in order for people to know when that day is. It could be the first day. It could be the middle of the first day. It could be the beginning of the second day or the middle of the second day before eventually that new moon is sighted. And until it's sighted and until it's verified, no man knows. The next argument for this uh, issue of secrecy comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, which we discussed in our study of Thessalonians. It says there, quote, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. This is a famous verse quoted numerous times out of context to prove ostensibly that, quote, the day of the Lord, unquote, which is or includes the rapture, is Therefore, secret, it's not possible to know when it's going to occur any more than it's possible to know when a thief will break into one's home. But, as we look at uh, the surrounding verses in context, Paul goes on to clarify what is going on in verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, quote, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as the thief. Verse 5, continuing, Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Unquote. So, placing verses 1-5 through five into full context, We see that the reality is that the Lord is coming as the thief in the night is something which only happens to the unregenerate, the unsaved, those who are children of the night, those who are in darkness. These will be taken by surprise because they don't believe in God. They're not looking for the event. They're not uh, even worried about it. Therefore, they're going to be taken by surprise, just in the same way that people are taken by surprise who are totally clueless and uh, unprepared uh, with the security of their home and a thief breaks in. However, conversely, those who know the Lord and are children of light, children of the day, are thus prepared for his coming, and they're not taken as a thief in the night because they are prepared and they're waiting the next verse and chapter that we find for this argument of secrecy comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, quote, And he, he being uh, Jesus, said unto them, them being the disciples, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Unquote. Again, this is another verse taken out of context wherein Jesus tells us, ostensibly, that God does not mean for us to know the times and the seasons, including the timing of the rapture or the tribulation or any of that. However, when we look at the preceding verse, verse 6, we see the question which the disciples asked Jesus, which then causes Jesus to give the above answer in verse 7. Verse 6 says, When they, they being the disciples, therefore were come together, they asked of him, him being Jesus, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So what's the topic under discussion? The restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Is there any question about the rapture? No. Is there any question about the tribulation? No. Is there any question about his second, third, fourth, fifth, or whatever coming? No. The question is specific to when is the restoration uh, of the kingdom to Israel? That's the question. So based on verse 6, the only question being asked is when God will restore the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus decides to give the answer to his disciples, essentially telling the disciples that this particular issue is none of their business at this time. It is not something that's important for them to know. And that's what it's limited to. You cannot take this verse and then transfer it to include everything under the sun, including the rapture, the tribulation, its second coming, and so forth it is limited exegetically and hermeneutically to simply and only when will Jesus restore again the kingdom to Israel, which was not for them to know. Next we have Matthew chapter 24 verse 50 and also Luke chapter 12 verse 40, which are very similar. Matthew says, quote, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of. So this, again, is a verse used to tell everyone that Jesus's servants, the elect, will not know what day that Jesus is coming. They won't be aware of it. It'll be a day that's anything but the day they're expecting. So therefore, it's secret. However, as we look at the verse and its context, we see that that servant which is being referenced is actually an evil servant and not a true servant. Therefore, this unawareness and secrecy is talking about the unregenerate, the unsaved, and not God's elect. Luke 12:40 is the same thing where it says, quote, Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not." Unquote. Again, this is related to the same context where it is only those who get complacent and lose their sense of urgency in redeeming the time or who are unregenerate in their nature. And as a result, uh, the timing of Jesus' return overtakes them because they are evil servants and not true servants. So neither one has to do with the elect of God, or has anything to do with secrecy except for those who are lost. Finally, we have to use just a bit of logic by extension with regard to secrecy. And let's go back to the spring and summer festivals, which we detailed in great length. Remember that the Jews were very familiar with these things. They did them every year repeatedly for thousands of years. So imagine yourself as a well-versed, well-read, if you will, brand Jew in the Old Testament. Let's say a Daniel, an Ezekiel, something along those lines. And you were very familiar, intimately familiar, with God's commandments of the Jewish feasts and festivals and what they foretold, which was the coming of the Messiah. The question is, Did God have an exact month, day, and time on his eschatological calendar as per the Jewish feasts and festivals for the entrance and selection of Messiah as the Lamb? What about Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, and the birth of the church? Were these events which God had fixed on his calendar ahead of time? Yes. Could we be aware of them by diligent study? Yes. Was it possible to miss these events because you were just not paying attention? Yes. Was there anything secret about them? No. So, by by extension, we have to ask ourselves, if there's no secret with the summer and spring festivals, why would there be an issue of secrecy with regard to the fall and winter festivals? There's the same amount of information there. We just have to have the same amount of faith that God is faithful to His promises and His prophecies. That's it. Secondly, did the best of Jewish scholars and prophets have absolute clarity as to how to explain or reconcile various passages any more than they had uh, ability to reconcile passages about a suffering Messiah versus a conquering Messiah? No. No. The same way that we ha- we don't have absolute clarity as to how to reconcile some difficult passages about eschatology. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a- an understanding of it. There are different opinions, but as we look at it and its fulfillment, We look back and we say, ah, I have complete clarity. So just because it looks one way doesn't mean that we can't necessarily have a good understanding if we approach it in a Berean way. The last issue that we have is a uh, complaint by those who dismiss the pre-tribulational view is what's called false security. Mid- and post-tribulational proponents argue that a reliance on a pre-tribulational rapture opens the door to leaving believers in that pre-tribulational theory being unprepared, disillusioned, or losing their faith in the event that it turns out that we're wrong. And if and when it turns out that we're wrong, we find ourselves in the midst of the tribulation, facing persecution, martyrdom, and ultimately losing our faith. Well, the first response to that is that this particular theory appeals to what would be called argumentum ad consequentium. In other words, we are being told that we must not allow ourselves to hope for trust in, or believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, because by doing so, if we are wrong, we will then be disappointed and may lose our faith. Therefore, the only solution to avoid disappointment is to reject the pre-tribulational view as being heretical. But the fact is, it is just as easy to take the argument and to flip it around and to say that Well, unless a believer is earnestly looking for Christ's appearance and looking forward to the rapture, looking up to our redemption drawing uh, near, that we may in fact miss the event due to an unpreparedness or to a lack of faith on our part. And to that extent, we might cite Hebrews chapter 9.28 as a possible verification of that very theory. It says there, quote, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation, unquote. Secondly, the theory of this false security fails to recognize that believers in all ages at all times have always been warned by Christ and others to expect persecution, suffering, tribulation, and physical death. Uh, that is the fate, if you will, of all Christians. What we don't have to look forward to and expect is that we should suffer the wrath of God, which is poured out upon sin, rebellion, the world, the wicked, and Satan, because as stated previously, God's wrath has already been poured out upon his son on the cross, and that issue is solved once and forever for those who are in Christ. Finally, as stated before, from a soteriological standpoint, the only theory which uh, allows a believer to lose their faith is one which is ultimately rooted in Armenian theology. Under the doctrines of grace, conversely, those who are saved will never, quote, lose their faith, unquote, because it is ultimately God and not man who is doing the saving, and God cannot fail to accomplish that which he has sovereignly chosen to do. It is only when you buy into Armenian theology, wherein it is man who is supposedly choosing to be saved, that you can therefore then later change your mind and become unsaved, and therefore lose your salvation. So the fact is that for those who are sovereignly chosen and elected by God to salvation, at the end of the day, these people are never going to lose their faith no matter when the rapture occurs because God has sovereignly chosen them and those that God has sovereignly chosen can never lose their faith. So, by final and ultimate conclusion, we see that the typological template and the prophecies contained in the Jewish feasts and festivals found in Leviticus chapter 23 and elsewhere, along with the remaining scriptures in Jewish culture and history, we see that God perfectly fulfilled the first four feasts and festivals of the spring-summer season, On this basis, we can take faith in God's trustworthiness that it is only logical to conclude and expect that God will likewise fulfill the remaining three of the fall winter feasts and festivals, which are a type, a prophecy, and a template of the rapture, the great tribulation, God's wrath, Jesus' second coming as King of Kings, and the millennial reign. So I would ask you now, what is the number which represents your understanding of eschatology and the feasts and festivals found in Leviticus 23? Hopefully, by God's grace, we have moved that needle from where we started to a much higher level of confidence and faith in what God is going to do in the future for those whom He loves, His elect, the Church. This concludes this episode and this podcast series. If you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I would encourage you to send me an email at pastor-yeshua underscore yeshua at yahoo.com That's p-a-s-t-o-r underscore y-e-s-h-u-a at yahoo.com Thank you for listening.
1: Around me. I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my foundation I will trust in Him I will trust in Him I will trust in Him